The following podcast contains explicit language. Let me take you back to the morning of March 27, 2003. I'm signing into a logbook at the federal courthouse in Detroit. Rick has been in prison for 15 years, and this is his first parole hearing. The 650 Lifer Law has been overturned. That means Rick's life sentence without parole has now been changed to life with the possibility of parole. This possibility comes down to what happens today in court. In 2003, I don't know much about Rick's case. I don't know that he was an FBI informant when he was a kid. All I know is he was a drug dealer in the 80s with a really memorable nickname. And I also know that musician Kid Rock is coming to testify on his behalf. From WDIV and Grand Media, this is Shattered, the White Boy Rick story. Chapter 7, Kid Rock and White Boy Rick. Kid Rock was someone that was a suburban white guy that became enamored with black culture. Crime historian Scott Bernstein. And was hanging out a lot downtown. He would name check Rick on songs. You were friends before or you were friends while you were locked up? We had bumped into each other, but we became more or less friends as I was locked up. Bob Ritchie, Kid Rock, wanted to show up at the parole hearing and tell the parole board, tell the judge that he felt that if things would have gone a little differently in his life, he could have become White Boy Rick instead of Kid Rock, the the rock star. The hearing starts at 10 a.m. sharp. Rick is the first one on the stand. He raises his right hand and swears to tell the truth. He seems comfortable even confident. He tells the board he sold drugs for about a year and a half in the 1980s. He admits to buying cocaine from Miami drug dealers for $17,000 a kilo and to transporting it to Michigan, where he sold it for $23,000 a kilo. He tells the parole board he made a quarter of a million dollars and blew it all on jet skis, clothes, cars, jewelry, and women. He says living in a six-by-nine cell that smells like urine, is no place to live, and that he'd rather be dead sometimes. So at this point, I'm going to entertain any testimony from uh, those persons who want to speak on behalf of Mr. Worshi. We have a transcript from that day, but unfortunately no audio. So we've asked some of our colleagues to read excerpts from the testimony. Uh, What is your name, sir? Robert James Ritchie. And how do you spell your last name? R-I-T-C-H-I-E. After Rick steps off the stand, a 34-year-old Kid Rock takes his place. He's dressed casually and shows up alone. No bling, no entourage. If you didn't know it, you would have never guessed he was a major celebrity. And what do you want to say on behalf of Mr. Worshi? Um, I first just want to start by saying that I know of who I am and being a celebrity and whatnot, and that's absolutely not my reason for being here. And to take it one step further, I even don't agree with these celebrities that go out and try to protest wars and things like that. Uh, Who are you? Oh, Kid Rock. Kid Rock. I'm a singer. The members of the parole board, they had no idea who he was. 
Former FBI agent Greg Schwartz was in the room that day. Yeah. And the bottom line was, <laughs> nobody knew who he was. Back to Kid Rock's testimony. If he got out, it would not only would it be to to be a part of his children's life and an influence on them, to hopefully save them from any wrong routes that they might be thinking about going down. Maybe he could take it a step further and help some other people and get that message out. And he had good intentions when he testified in 2000. Oh, absolutely. Rick's sister, Don Scott. He, he, he went out of his way, out of his way to help Rick and be nice to my kids and I. FBI agent Herm Groman takes the stand after Kid Rock. When I went before that parole board and I explained in great detail Operation Backbone, uh, Worsley's contribution to that, his uh, cooperation uh, prior to that. Groman tells the parole board Rick has cooperated fully with the United States government and has always been truthful. Rick's mom, Darlene McCormick, is in the courtroom too. She's clearly nervous and uncomfortable. Here's a reading from her testimony. I feel very responsible for Richard and the problems that he's had and his and his incarceration because I went through a very bitter, ugly divorce with his father and made a decision in my life to leave my children with him, thinking it would be the better thing for them. As it turned out, it wasn't. But that's something that I'll have to live with for the rest of my life. Rick's supporters tell the board he learned his lesson, that he made some bad decisions. Yes, Rick sold drugs, but he wasn't violent. He was reformed, ready to be a productive member of society. Things were looking good. As Rick's parole board hearing moves along, Rick thinks the only thing standing between him and freedom is a brief closing statement from the prosecutor's office. But that's not what happens. Instead, a massive effort mounts to keep Rick locked up. A letter is presented to the parole board from then Wayne County Prosecutor Mike Duggan, who, by the way, is now the mayor of Detroit. The most damaging part of Duggan's letter reads, Worsey's violent collateral crimes and the sheer volume of controlled substances that were introduced into the city of Detroit confirm that Worshi is a serious danger to the people of the city of Detroit and all of southeastern Michigan in particular. Worshi had an extensive juvenile record. As a juvenile, he was arrested for assault with intent to murder, felony firearm, and breaking and entering of an occupied dwelling. All cases were dismissed for failure of the complaining witnesses to appear. Whoever wrote that letter lied. And then I don't think anyone will own up to it because there's no proof of anything they said in the letter. I think whoever wrote the letter should have been a lot more responsible in sending a letter like that to the parole board filled with lies and, and false allegations. It's it's a bunch of conjecture. It's it's I don't even know how to respond. The letter makes me angry. I have a copy of Rick's official juvenile record 
it does not support Duggan's letter. There are two offenses in it, unlawful driving away of a motor vehicle and carrying a concealed weapon. Both offenses happened when Rick was 15 years old, and neither is considered a violent crime. The file also says, in both cases, neither Rick's mother or father was available to be present for court proceedings. Rick says the only violent trouble he's ever been in was when he fired a gun at the person who stole his grandma's car. He was charged, but the case was dismissed when the officer in charge failed to show up at court. I asked Mayor Mike Duggan about this letter recently. He said he doesn't remember writing it and no longer has a position one way or the other on whether Richard Wershey Jr. should be locked up or released. The prosecutor's office, when I was there, made a recommendation in 2003 uh, based on the amount of time he served in 2003. And now it's prosecutor Worthy's job to decide in 2016 what's appropriate. After Duggan's letter, things go from bad to worse when an agent from the DEA named Dick Crock takes a stand. Crock tells the board he has information to suggest that in 1987, Rick Wershey Jr. put a hit out on a potential witness in his drug case. The witness, Roy Grisson. If you remember, Grisson was in the car with Rick the day he got arrested. Crock says Grisson told him that a guy named Riley shot him and that Riley told Grisson he was sent by Rick to do the job. It's funny because Roy Grissom tells a totally different story and he's written me letters over the years and he says he can't wait to see me until I'm home. So Dick Crock's a liar. I don't believe Roy ever said that. And I believe Dick made the whole story up. Hello. Hello, Dick. Yes. Hey, this is Kevin Dietz, uh, Channel 4 in Detroit. How you doing? Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Good. It's been a long, long time. Yeah, this has been. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, you testified at Rick Worsh's parole hearing in 2003. Okay. And you testified that uh, that uh, uh, Riley shot Roy Grissom and that Grissom, I believe Grissom, told you that when he was shot, that Riley pulled a gun out of the bag and said, this is from Rick, and then shot him. Right. And that's that's what your testimony says. Yeah, that's what Grissom told us. And whether or not it's true or not, you don't know, but you testified that's what he said. That's, that's correct. Um, you know, I, I think what was the testimony at the time and the information at the time was accurate. That's my personal opinion. You know, the facts of the case are, you know, they stand on their own. Um, and everybody can interpret those any way they see fit. We tried several times to talk to Roy Grisson to ask him if he thinks Rick actually did put a contract out on his life. He did not respond to our request for an interview. But in 2015, Grisson did tell the Dime Droppers blog that Croc's testimony was not accurate saying the shooter, Riley, was high on drugs and was trying to rob him, and that he never told Croc that Rick put a hit out on him. Former FBI agent Herm Groman doesn't buy Croc's story either. Uh, it's not consistent with, with what I know about that Worshey. Worshey is a bad kid. Don't, don't bring me along. He, he needed to go to jail, but not for the rest of his life, and he was never a violent guy. 
His prison record even demonstrates that for 30 years. He's never been involved in anything violent in prison. Uh, so I think that speaks volumes. Back at the parole board hearing, Detroit police officer Bill Rice from the homicide unit takes a stand. He is one of four cops who testify against Rick Wershey at the hearing. Back in the late 80s, Bill Rice replaced Gil Hill as head of homicide in the Detroit Police Department. Rice says he never saw Rick's name come across his desk. Well, I, I didn't have any knowledge on Rick Wershey. So I became acquainted with what the allegations were, what his charges were, why he was there. And I, I didn't know anything personally. I had had no contact with him. Did you feel like as the head of homicide, you were the right guy to go testify at this hearing? No, I didn't. You felt like you were ordered to go? Absolutely. I talked about the ills of selling drugs, what it, the damages that it did to the community, how far-reaching and the impact of homicides connected to drugs. Wershey, who 24 hours earlier was sure he was going home, was confused, baffled that police officers he never met, never had contact with, were testifying that he would be a danger to society if released. Uh, it was a kangaroo court, and it's, it's not like, you know, a court of law where you have to defend your statements that you make through cross-examination. None of that takes place. So you, essentially, anybody can get up and say anything they want. Here's how former FBI agent Greg Schwartz remembers it. Those dumb members of the parole board sat there and soaked it all in, like every word was the truth. Not one time did they ask any logical questions like, why were you here today? How long ago did you get this information? Or is this all is this all information that you read? Or is this firsthand information that you're giving us? They didn't do anything. Nothing. Rick is giving a closing statement where he tries to explain his motivation for getting into the drug world to begin with. That it was police and FBI who recruited him to be an informant and paid him to do drug buys so they could make arrests. Right after the hearing... I talked to Rick's sister Dawn outside the courthouse. Rick was 17 when, when he broke the law. So how, what, what was his mental state at that time? I know now at this time that his psychological report is one of the best that's come out of the prison that he's in right now. When the parole board takes its vote at its next scheduled meeting, Rick's request for parole is denied. He's sent back to prison. I guess I was somewhat naive uh, at that point. I just didn't realize that there was this much opposition to him being paroled. You really thought you were coming home in 2003. Why is that? Because I had just watched another guy go home that had a 500 kilo federal case and life from the state that was released in 10 years. There's people in here every day that I watch them, they stab people in prison and commit violent acts in prison catch another case in prison and they're, and they're paroled. They're in here for violence, they commit a violent act in prison and they parole them. So, why am I so different? This is ridiculous. Why is he still there? Why? What reason? They have murderers and rapists that are out and he's still there. Here's an odd story. That homicide cop who testified against Rick at the hearing, Bill Rice. 
I talked about the ills of selling drugs, what it, the damages that it did to the community. Well, not long after the parole hearing, Rice himself was sent to prison. He had pleaded guilty to charges of operating a criminal enterprise involving mortgage fraud and drug dealing. And guess what prison he was sent to? The same one Rick Worshi was in. Did he recognize you? Yes. In person? Yes. As the person who testified against you? Exactly. One day, the two were walking down the same hallway. Worshi, who thought he got screwed at the parole hearing, and Rice, the cop who testified against him. Rick's attorney, Ralph Maselli. And so Rick is walking down the hall, and this ex-officer is walking toward him, and he sees Rick, and he said, oh my God, what are you doing here? You're still in? And Rick said, where in the hell did you think I'd be? And they started to talk. Bill Rice admitted he was one of several Detroit police officers ordered by upper management to testify against Rick that day in 2003. But what do we know now about that hearing in 2003? What we know is that the four homicide cops didn't know who Rick Worshi was. They didn't know him from Adam. His name had never come up in any homicide investigation, not even peripherally. He never showed up on their radar. They were given that grand jury testimony to prepare so that they would have inside information. Rick had provided grand jury testimony into an investigation of a violent street enforcement gang from Detroit from behind bars. Testimony, by law, has to be confidential to protect witnesses providing the information. I read the grand jury transcript that was there, um, and I talked to other officers. But let's not go too far past that. It's a felony to read grand jury testimony or for someone to give it to you. Well, I don't know if it was a felony or not, but it was available. From whom? Uh, it would have been then the prosecuting attorney. They were told what to say. They were told how to say it. So they went in there and they basically lied through their teeth. Wayne County prosecutor knew they were lying. In all likelihood, the parole board, which was heavily weighted by Wayne County appointees, knew. And so Rick never had a chance. Bill Rice said he would swear to his story under oath in an affidavit, and he did, saying, quote, It is my considered opinion that the only rational explanation for the continued incarceration of Richard Worshi Jr. and the consistent denial of even a parole hearing since 2003 is that his file has been red flagged. Red flagged means someone or some group has taken a special interest in his file. But Rice says he doesn't know who that someone was. Bill Rice served two years in prison for his criminal enterprise charge. He's out now. And as I was interviewing him at his home in Detroit, my phone rings. We may start the conversation now. Hey, Rick. Hey, I'm sitting here uh, doing an interview. I got my cameras on, so just so you know, I'm sitting here with Bill Rice. Oh, okay, okay. Let me speak to him. You are. You are. You He's are. Listening. You're on speakerphone. How are you? What's going on, buddy? Listen, I'm waiting on you to come out. Yeah, I can't. Shit, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I I'm just saying right now how ridiculous this is. 
Yeah. Rick has never been so sure that the 2003 hearing was a sham. Theater, to make it look like he was given fair consideration. When in fact, he says he never had a chance at getting out. What makes me so different than anyone else that they parole? Nate Boonecraft is the hitman who admits to trying to kill Rick. He was convicted of two murders and confessed to 28 more as part of a cooperation agreement. Because Kraft cooperated, his sentence was shortened to 18 years. So he's out, and he can't believe Rick is still in. That boy to waste his life. Look at him, he done waste away. He went there as a young kid. Now look at him, he look like an old man after being, being beat down so long in the prison system. We can't know for sure why Rick was denied parole in 2003, but he's convinced it was Gil Hill wielding his power from behind the scenes. I absolutely believe it. There's someone or something that's keeping me in prison and it's not the crime that I committed. Why has everybody else been released? What do you think about um, Rick's feeling, uh, although no proof, but his feeling that somehow Gil Hill um, and others manipulated the parole board to keep him locked up longer than he should have been? Well, uh, you know, I don't have any specific hardcore information. FBI agent Herm Groman. I believe that uh, there was a lot of angst and a lot of anger directed at Worshi, unjustifiably, uh, because, um, you know, the, uh, the mayor was embarrassed. His family was, some his family members were arrested. The uh, Detroit Police Department was embarrassed. Gil Hill ran for office, uh, was defeated. So there was a... Um, and animus uh, toward uh, Worshi, to the FBI as well. But uh, Worshi was treated unfairly, in my opinion. After his parole hearing, Rick returned to a witness protection facility in Florida. He felt angry and dejected. His sister Dawn was back in Detroit, raising her kids and Rick's. I raised his oldest daughter. Rick and her mother were 15 when they had her. So she lived with me even before he went to jail Monday through Friday and went home on weekends. And she was struggling to make ends meet for the family. The entrepreneur and Rick re-emerged from behind bars. He had met a guy in prison who bought cars cheap in Florida and shipped them around the country to sell for more money. Rick connected Dawn to the Florida car dealer so she could resell them and make a few bucks. But to be able to do business from prison, Rick had to figure out a way to use the phone without it being monitored. You may start the conversation now. All prison calls are monitored, unless you're talking to your lawyer. So every day, Rick would dial attorney Patrick McQueenie's number. McQueenie was handling Rick's appeal. What both McQueenie and prison officials didn't know is that McQueenie's secretary had set up a secret office phone line at Dawn Worshi's house. We answered the phone, Patrick McQueenie's office, hold please. And then they'd put it on hold and he could go into a private room to talk. Now Rick could make phone calls to Dawn's house and talk to anyone he wanted without authorities listening. I almost every day made calls for him. He used this phone to arrange car shipments from Florida to Michigan. Dawn remembers the cars arriving on trucks and being unloaded on her front lawn. I mean, at one time, a car hauler would pull up at my house on 12 Mile in Jefferson and drop off 10 cars because we had a large yard. 
And I mean, it looked like a car lot in our yard, but they all fit back there. And Rick's mom even bought one of the cars. But as it turns out, some of those Florida cars were stolen. Rick's current lawyer, Ralph Maselli. It was a stolen car rig. They would steal luxury automobiles from dealership used car lots. They would change the VIN numbers, and then they would sell them. And the, the guy that was the ringleader was in prison with Rick. He was operating this out of a federal prison. Well, Rick called his mother and sister and said, hey, these are great deals. The ringleaders were busted, and so was Rick. He was charged with conspiracy. I was told you take a plea bargain or I'm going to arrest your mom and your sister. So what did I do? I took a plea bargain against my attorney's wishes. Rick was sentenced to five years for his involvement in the stolen car ring in 2006. and was kicked out of federal protective custody and shipped from Florida back to Michigan to serve out the remainder of his life sentence on the drug charge. If he were to ever get parole in Michigan, he might then have to circle back to Florida to serve five more years for his role in the car theft ring. Every five years, prisoners serving life sentences come up for parole consideration. In 2008, Rick was denied. Not surprising considering the car ring incident just a few years back. In 2013, he was denied again. He thought he would have to wait until 2017 for another chance. But in 2015, Judge Dana Hathaway surprised everyone, saying she would resentence Rick immediately. I'm calling case number 87004902, the People versus Richard Worsey. This matters before the court for a motion hearing. The judge who originally sentenced Rick to life in 1987 had retired. So once Hathaway took over Rick's file, she reviewed it. I want to first note that this case comes to the court on a unique set of facts and circumstances that are only applicable to this particular defendant. This decision is based on the wealth of case law governing juvenile offenders and the evolution of the drug crime penalties since defendant was incarcerated. Today, Richard Worsey got the ruling that he has been hoping for and praying for for decades. Now, in his own words, hear what it means to him. If the judge decides to sentence him to time served, it would mean he's done with his time behind bars in Michigan. It's going to be like lifting the weight of the world off my shoulders. I'll, I'll, I'll have an end in sight. I know that I won't die in prison for something that I shouldn't have done 28 years in prison for anyway. But before Judge Hathaway could make her ruling, current Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy stepped in. She said Hathaway didn't have the authority to release Rick from prison. The Court of Appeals agreed with Worthy, and the Supreme Court refused to act. There were some signs for Worshi, this man who has spent more time behind bars than any other juvenile offender in Michigan history, that he would be getting out of jail soon. Yeah, but just hours ago, the Court of Appeals dashed his hopes. Oh, I'm disappointed. I mean, let down a little bit, but I expected it, to be honest with you. After all this time in here, you don't believe you're going to get out of here until the day you walk out of here. I'll keep fighting until my dying breath. When I was convicted, I said, I'll never give up and I'm never going to let him win. I'm not going to lie. There's times, you know, that I, I get down or I get depressed or I miss my kids and my family. And, you know, in the end, I think, you know, God's got a plan for me. And, and 
I'm going to see what that plan is. Coming up. As soon as we saw each other, it didn't feel like 28 years. There was like instant, instant connection. connection. You could just feel it in the love. It's almost like if you had, if something was broken, as soon as you hugged him, it was healed. And we knew it. <laughs> Today's episode was produced by Zach Rosen and me. It was edited and mixed by Zach Rosen. Tad Davis is our assistant producer. WDIV's executive producer of special projects is Ro Coppola. WDIV's news director is Kim Voet. My name is Kevin Dietz. Jerry Lemonu created original illustrations for each episode of this season. See them at whiteboyrick.show. If you like the podcast, consider writing a review for us in the Apple Podcast Store. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shattered Podcast. Your feed. Thank you for listening 